All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 109. Thanks for joining us this evening. My name's Bob Ekhairi. I'm going to be joined by my co-host, J.D. Moore and Sirius. And then we're going to be talking tonight with Sam Khan Jr., senior college football writer for The Athletic. In fact, I see him. And a welcome to everyone as we get everyone kind of up and settled in. It's a good time to be talking. Right now, there's a couple of games going on. Memphis has got a healthy lead over Tulsa, and Louisiana's got an even healthier lead over Georgia Southern. Sirius, are you here? Yeah, I'm here. Excellent. Cool. And there you are, JD. And and welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So for those of you who are probably familiar, Sam is senior college football writer at The Athletic, where he's the resident tech expert covering football and recruiting primarily in the state of Texas. Previously, he spent eight years covering college football at ESPN.com and seven years as a sports reporter at the Houston Chronicle. I know JD wanted to kick us off, but I just wanted to thank you again for joining us. I know it's been a hard week for, for some of us with this crazy flu that's been going around. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, you know, when you got family and kids particularly, that stuff passes through really quickly. So uh, so it passed through oh, our house. Yeah. And uh, me and, and some of my colleagues even uh, that I've worked with uh, have experienced this too. So, But I, I'm on the mend and, and feeling good and appreciate you guys accommodating. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Happy, happy to accommodate and make sure that you, your family, your kiddos, everybody's good, healthy, and safe and good to go. So, Sam, again, we really appreciate the time. Really appreciated running into you up in Fort Worth for that TCU Texas Tech game. And, you know, I wanted to kick it off with the article that you wrote this week for The Athletic talking about playoff expansion and how it specifically would not dilute the regular season and how it would even impact how we might even enjoy some of these regular season games. I would love to hear a little bit more about your case for that. With this expanded playoff, what does that exactly look like for some of these games like a TCU Texas Tech where we might have more intrigue or less intrigue? What's your stance on it? Yeah, so this kind of came out of a little bit of a debate, an argument between me and my colleague Ari Washerman. Very fun-spirited debate, mind you. And and I think every argument with Ari is uh, is, is fun-spirited, uh, but he's very passionate about it. And Ari, I think, contended that the results that we had last weekend, in particular LSU, Alabama, Clemson, uh, Notre Dame, those types of games, the Georgia, Tennessee, the stakes are not the same in a 12-team playoff. And I think that's fair. But I think the his stance was that those games essentially become meaningless because all three of the teams that lost in that game in those games are in the top 12 still in the latest college football playoff rankings. So they would be in still good position to make the playoff. And my point is, is that I wouldn't call it meaningless because there still would be something to play for, whether it's a first-round bye, whether it's a home game, uh, in the first round, uh, or in being in the conference championship race, because the one thing the 12 team playoff is going to bring is automatic bids, meaning that you can play your way in if you win your conference, if you're one of the six highest ranked teams. So to me, moving that emphasis to conference championships is still important. Does it change the calculus for Ohio State or Alabama or Georgia teams like that? Sure. And, and I think Ari's case was that it provides more mulligans for them. And my point is they already get a mulligan that other teams don't. Alabama is a two-loss team that if, let's say, LSU ended up losing another game and Alabama snuck into the SEC title and, and beat Georgia. 
a two-loss Alabama probably gets in there, or LSU, who's got two losses right now. If they are able to run the table the rest of the way and get into the big SEC championship and beat Georgia, I think they'd have a really good shot of being the first two-loss team in the playoff. But if TCU lost two games, there's no way they're getting in. And I think if they lose one game, they may have a hard time getting in, possibly, because we know that just from the history of the playoff that we've seen so far is that the teams not in the SEC and the Big Ten are going to be treated a little bit differently when it comes to sizing up their resumes at the end of the year. TCU fans had a personal experience with this in 2014 when their team finished 11-1. and They were number three in the playoff rankings before the final rankings. And then after they won their final game, they ended up dropping down to number six. And, of course, we know Ohio State got in as the four seed and Ohio State ended up winning the title. But I think that it does change – while it changes the calculus for those bigger teams slightly – It doesn't make them meaningless, and what it does do is it increases the stakes for these games, and you mentioned TCU and Texas, a game that I'll cover this weekend. That game right now has playoff implications for only one team. It's for TCU. They're trying to stay in the mix. If we have a 12-team playoff with the six auto-bid conference champions, then guess what? Texas is still in that race right now, and then they go into this game And this game still has stakes for Texas right now because they're trying to get back to a place where they have been in the past. And they would love to have a nine and three season, potentially 10 and three if they, if they win a bowl game, but they would still be in the playoff race because they're still in the big 12 title race. And if Texas wins out then Texas is in the big 12 championship game. And then if Texas goes in and wins a big 12 championship, then in a 12 team playoff, they are in the postseason. So to me, the addition of those games and then not to mention the group of five teams, the the Coastal Carolinas and the UCS that have been left out in the past. Cincinnati finally finally broke through, but that was an exception. Uh, Tulane's would have been in in a 12-team this year, assuming that they end up the season winning out. Those are all, to me, positives that will are good for the greater health of the sport long-term and does not concentrate the power to just a small handful of teams, like 12 to 15 teams, that actually have a chance of winning the national title. I don't think it's going to change who wins the title in most cases, but it sure as heck is going to make November a lot more fun for a lot more teams and fan bases. Now, Ari, in his article, he rebutted specifically the idea of a TCU and Texas having some kind of implication. He makes the argument that it's already a game for these two, especially given the fact, you know, he makes the argument that if TCU is undefeated and is supposed to be able to keep up with, say, a Georgia or an Ohio State or someone else like that, as a 9-0 and team, they shouldn't be a seven-point underdog to a three-loss team, which that's kind of the situation that we've got happening in Austin this weekend. What kind of response would you have to his kind of argument for that? I think that's fair, but the problem with that I have with that is that we're leaving the determination to the subjective committee at that point. And my preference is, is that you play your way in. And, like, let's take TCU and Michigan, for example. Right now, TCU is a spot behind Michigan. And everybody, I think, will talk to you till you're blue in the face that the Big Ten is better than the Big 12 just because the perceived power of that conference. But if you look at Michigan's schedule, it's really not better than TCU's at this point. Honestly, I think if you calculate it, I haven't done it this week. I did it last week. But if you calculate the win-loss record of the opponents – Michigan's has got to be either the same or worse than TCU's at this point. And the non-conference schedules, I think both of their non-conference schedules are underwhelming. But and, and so then I guess people will say, okay, well, Michigan has dominated their games a little bit more, which is fair. 
but we're at this point we're we're picking nits and it becomes a very subjective process and if the idea is to find a champion then i feel like taking the, some of the subjectivity out of it especially when conference championships can have some value i think it's worthwhile i agree that yes the stakes are much much higher for tcu right now because if they lose it's going to really hurt them but is that i again ask is that truly fair and is that are, are we saying that because TCU truly doesn't deserve to be a top four team? Or are we saying that just because we have this perception that the Big 12 is just not as good, good as the Big 10 or the SEC? Sam, to play devil's advocate here for a second, on the TCU versus uh, two-loss LSU or two-loss Alabama argument, one of your more recent articles, you said that uh, you saw that Georgia, you thought Georgia was head and shoulders above everybody else. Wouldn't LSU, if they run the table and manage to beat Georgia, who would be undefeated in the SEC championship, wouldn't that win alone basically propel them up into the playoff, regardless of everything else, with the fact that they have that 13th win and it's over what would presumably be the number one team in the country compared to a two-loss TCU that, no knock in their own, there's just not a second team in the and the Big 12, it looks like this year, that's going to provide anywhere near that kind of a caliber of of win in the conference championship game. Yeah, I, th- I think I have a hard time believing that a two-loss LSU that wins the SEC championship over Georgia is going to get left out. I really do, especially when you look at where they are right now. Sitting at number seven in the current rankings, I, it looks like the path is pretty clear there, that if they just win the rest of their games and they, and they beat Georgia in the title, I think they're in. Uh, I don't... The, are they, the question is, oh, certainly they would be in over a two-loss TCU. I guess the question is, is if it's up to LSU, 12-2 uh, and two LSU versus a 12-1 and one TCU, or I should say 11-2 and two LSU versus a 12-1 and one TCU, which one goes in? And I, I think I have the feeling that the 11-2 and two LSU would go in because they would have beaten Alabama, they would have beaten Georgia. So – I guess that and that that would be a fascinating case study to see if it ends up being that way. But yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I think I think LSU if they win out, they're going to get in. It seems like basically like right now we're kind of setting things up to be Big Ten champion, which presumably would be either Ohio State or Michigan, one of the two. SEC champion, and then TCU, possibly a Pac-12 team possibly a second SEC team, depending on how that all shakes out. And I think that it seems like the ACC is pretty much done at this point, unless something really weird happens. Yeah, possibly the the loser of Ohio State, Michigan, depending on how things play on the Big 12. I think that's where TCU's role comes in, is if TCU loses a game or two, them comparing to a one-loss Ohio State or one-loss Michigan is going to be another fascinating debate that, that I think we'll have if we get to that point. So, obviously, the big game heading this weekend is TCU heading down to Texas. Based on the observations you had from the TCU Tech game and, you know, D Winter's targeting call and all of that stuff, how do you think, what are your expectations for this game? I'm really fascinated to see how it starts because we've got two teams with two very distinct trends. Texas has had this trend of starting fast and fading on the stretch. TCU has had a stretch of starting slow and then finishing strong. So how does that look 
on Saturday. I, I do think the fact that Texas is at home, the crowd's going to be rocking. You got college game day. The last time they were in that atmosphere, which was in week two against Alabama, I thought that Texas team really lived up to the moment. And so I wonder if you're going to see them really feed off that energy on Saturday night. And, and I think Steve Sarkeesian is a really good uh, opening script play caller. Like his, his first 15, 20 plays are typically pretty good. He's a great game planner. And I think he's really good about setting up and calling, you know, deep shots off of their different concepts in the run game and, and their RPOs. So I think they're going to test TCU early. And that that's going to be, I think the big key is, can TCU kind of weather the storm early uh, as, as Texas throws the kitchen sink at them? And if they can, then I think TCU's got enough firepower to take that, to take this thing down to the wire because of how many weapons they have offensively. Now, part of it, there are two key players that in one of them, you just mentioned D winners, who's going to miss a half because of the targeting call. So that's going to put a lot of stress on, on Shadrick Banks, the uh, sophomore linebacker, true sophomore transfer from Texas A&M. Uh, Shad, uh, he's still fairly new to the position. He, he was a receiver, recruited out of high school, moved to the, the linebacker last year when he transferred to TCU. But Sonny Dyke seemed pretty pleased with how he played in Dean Winter's place uh, last week. Uh, be interested to see how he does in the first half and if, he, if Texas tries to attack him at all. And then on the other side, Quentin Johnson, he's been battling uh, their best receiver, TCU's best receiver. They've been battling an ankle injury, tried to go against Texas Tech, couldn't, couldn't really go, only played a few snaps. Uh, didn't practice Monday, Tuesday, so uh, I think Sonny Dyke said he was supposed to practice Wednesday. So we'll have to see how healthy he is. They still have a lot of weapons if they if he cannot go because they still got Darius Davis, you still got Tay Barber, you still got Savion Williams, still got Kendra Miller who's got 600 yard rushing games in the last seven weeks, and of course you got Max Duggan, the Heisman candidate. So they still got options, but boy, if you have a healthy Quentin Johnson or close to it, then that is going to put a lot of stress on Texas defense, and I think it makes for a really compelling matchup. So. There's a lot of really good individual matchups, I think, to watch in this game, and it's going to be a lot of fun for anybody who just loves just ball and stuff. Like the storylines and the pageantry and all that's going to be great, but if you just love watching ball, watching Steve Sarkeesian and Garrett Riley call call the game with their all their offensive weapons against these two defenses is going to be a really a lot of fun to watch. Sam, one key thing that we've seen a lot in these TCU wins this year is trailing in the second half, particularly the third quarter, and then TCU being able to mount up a comeback. Based off of what we've seen with the Texas defense, it definitely seems like a second half comeback would be possible if TCU needed to do that, especially if they have Quinton Johnson back and you have you know a lot of their offensive performance really coming out strong. Max Duggan has a great day, but how deep of a hole would be too deep for this TCU offense if they go into the second half with any kind of deficit? I mean, is this a game where they can play around like they did with Oklahoma State and be down 17? Is this a game that they got to stay within one touchdown? I mean, what would be essentially that breaking point of if Texas gets up by X amount of points, it's going to be next to impossible for TCU to come back? I, I think about, I think 14 to 17 points is about the limit. I think you get down three touchdowns especially in that environment at night, I think it's going to be really, really tough. Uh, and, and the thing is, is Texas has had those second half collapses on defense, really on the road. They really haven't done it at home. I think the only game they've lost at home this year is the Alabama game. They, they, they played with their food a little bit against Iowa State, but that was a game that 
that was never really out of reach because Iowa State offensively just is, is not the same team as as Alabama or TCU. So they were able to kind of pull themselves out of that. But they they the they haven't really they've played a lot better at home. So I think I think if you're TCU, I think 14 is about the limit. I think maybe 17 possibly, but I think you really don't want to get down three scores in this game. I think you, you can probably still manage with two scores and, and it, it helps you keep the run game an option. That's one thing that I've been really impressed with, with TCU in these comebacks is they stayed committed to the run in the second half. When they were down against Oklahoma state, when they were down against Kansas state, they're still feeding Kendra Miller and, and they're still moving the chains. And that's one thing a lot of coaches do not do. A lot of coaches are, will, will abandon the run in the second half. They're behind just because of pure clock issues. But uh, I think, I give Garrett Riley and Sunday Jacks credit that, that that they stick with it and it and it works. And also some of that is Max Duggan too, because uh, with Miller and and Duggan's running ability, that they they really can stress some defenses. And they're also really good on getting the ball into the playmakers' hands quickly, whether it's on jet sweeps, whether it's on bubble screens, out on the perimeter. Uh, they're really good about kind of testing you east to west, and then trying to take you shot either in the run game up the middle or downfield. So. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it would really behoove them to not really get down that much. And I think, uh, like I said, I think it's a veteran team that's done it enough they can climb out of it. But, yeah, I think 14 is about the limit. Continuing the, the matchup between uh, Texas and TCU, not to throw any fuel on the, the conspiracy theory fire, but we have to admit that TCU has gotten the advantage um, in some of their several of their games either playing quarterbacks who weren't feeling 100% or quarterbacks had to leave the game early. Um, Quinn Ewers obviously has already missed some games this season. How is that going to line up? Is uh, this TCU defense a little bit more aggressive, um, disruptive, chaotic? And could we see Quinn Ewers maybe exit the game early if that trend continues? Or has it just been kind of you know blind luck so far, um, bad luck for opposing teams? that's kind of led to this trend. Yeah, I think, I think that's so hard to predict. Obviously the Oklahoma game, it was, it was a clear targeting call and, and that was, that was a bad hit. And, and that, that one is pretty self-explanatory. The, the Oklahoma state, obviously Spencer Sanders had already been hurt when he came in. Uh, last week, Baron Morton had, I guess, he rolled his ankle or turned his ankle. He had had kind of been battling ankle injury anyway before. So they, they have been the beneficiary of some good luck. Certainly. Uh, you know, it, it, if Texas has to, if that has to happen, I mean, we've seen Texas with Hudson Card, and I, I thought Hudson did a really good job early in the year of really managing the offense. You could tell he's taken a step in his development. You know, last year I thought there were times where, especially that Arkansas game, he, he definitely looked a little deer in the headlights at times. Uh, and that, that was an overwhelming atmosphere, I think, for, for that team. That team was a little bit young, that, that aligned. Uh, seemed to be a little bit overwhelmed and, and that play and that certainly affected Hudson card as well. But I was really impressed with the way he's played early on and, and in relief when I thought he, you know, he gutted it out against Alabama with that ankle injury. And he was not really a hundred percent the next few weeks, led him to a win over UTSA. And then Texas tech, obviously they were ahead uh, by I think 14 or 17 points in the second half, obviously Texas tech came back and won, but, you know, that's not something that falls on Hudson Card. I mean, the defense was on the field for 100 plays. So uh, I, I was really impressed with the way he fought and battled. And I think this offense can run capably with him. It's just 
the offense is not the same in terms of the deep shots because Quinn's deep shot of, of deep throwing ability is is special. And Hudson is just not that guy. He's going to run the short game and intermediate game a lot better. And he's also a threat with his legs, which yours is not. Uh, and, and I would assume Card is probably 100% by now, now that he hasn't played in a few games. But uh, but I think if he has to come in there and play, I think Texas will be just fine. Yeah. How much, you know, the other big story kind of going into this game that a lot of people are talking about is how much of an impact do you think Gary Patterson's going to have in all of this? I mean, really? I don't think it's going to be as huge as people make it out to be. His impact is probably been these last couple of days is in game planning and preparation, because the one thing Gary Patterson really offers in this scenario is knowledge of the personnel, because he recruited most of those guys on that TC roster. So he knows Max Duggan in and out. He knows a lot of those defensive players, the D Winters, the Travis Hodges, the Tomlinson, the Dylan Hortons. He knows those guys in and out. He knows their tendencies. He knows what makes them tick. That is certainly going to help. Uh, but this is a different offense, and this is a different TCU team now. I mean, now he has seen this offensive coordinator before and this head coach. Sonny Dykes and Garrett Riley were at SMU, and they played uh, TCU a couple times uh, in their tenure at SMU. So he's definitely got some familiarity there. So I think he can help from a game planning standpoint uh, and a preparation standpoint. But he, he's not wearing a headset on the sideline. He's not calling the defense. This is still – Kwiatkowski's defense. I, I'm sure they probably have, they're probably going to have a few special things cooked up because, you know, Gary's got some extra input. And, and Sarke- Steve Sarkeesian has said one thing he likes to do is, hey, in the middle of the week or late in the week, I like to go to Gary with my game plan and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing offensively. How would you defend this? Or, or, or what are some potential answers to this? And that's, that's a really good, helpful measure, not just in this game, but in any game that helps a guy like Sarkeesian anticipate opposing teams adjustments and adjusting to those adjustments. So that, that's where that comes in. But, but I don't think it's going to have an, even though I'm sure it's going to be a big talking point on, on the television broadcast, I don't think it's going to be a major factor. I think it is a little bit of an advantage for Texas, but, but I do think uh, that, that overall it's not going to be a huge deciding factor. Sam, I'm curious to know what the move feels like right now in Austin. Let's say for example, if Texas ends up losing this game, it would be the 12th season in 13 years that the University of Texas has posted four losses in a season. At that point, is Steve Sarkeesian still good to keep on keeping on, or is he going to have to make some changes at coordinators? What kind of seems to be the sentiment of what's the possible falling out at Texas if Steve Sarkeesian doesn't pick up the win against TCU this year? I don't, I don't see this game as being a tipping point in that regard. I think it's more how do they finish the season? How do these next three weeks go? Because if they lose this game and then they beat Kansas and they beat Bear to close out the year and you end up 8-4, and four, that is about, I think, if, if you told a lot of Texas fans before the season that you're going to be 8-4, and four, I think a lot of them would have taken it. Uh, because they were 5-7 and seven last year. And remember how bad things got last year. It was... It was pretty bad, not just on the field, but off the field, too. They, Texas was in, in the headlines for not just reasons for losing, but reasons off the field as well. Uh, they have been mostly a drama-free team this year. They, they really haven't they, – they've really not really had any off-the-field issues for the most part. And they've been a better team, I thought. You know, they, they certainly showed some progress uh, in the game against Alabama, despite having to play with two injured quarterbacks. 
Now the road losses became an issue because that 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 seemed to be a bugaboo for for Sark, and they almost dropped that second half against Kansas State, but they were able to hold on. They were able to make a play defensively, and I think from a mental standpoint, that was huge for that team to come out of Manhattan with that win because if if they had dropped that game in the same way that they dropped the Oklahoma State game, in the same way they dropped the Texas State game, in the same way they dropped a bunch of games last year. I think that would have really lingered. But the fact that they were able to come out with it, I think it's going to be really, really huge for that team. And when you combine that with the recruiting, which when we talk about trajectory of a program, we talk about a coach security, especially at a place like Texas, recruiting factors into that. And you look at they got the number six class in the country right now, according to 247. They've got the number one prospect in the country in Arch Manning. Uh, things seem to be trending in a really good direction. They've got Anthony Hill, five-star linebacker, visiting this weekend. If they can close out that recruiting class really well and close out the season pretty well, then I think he, he's a okay. I don't think at any point we're at a point now where now that they're qualified for a bowl game, they're six and three. I don't think there's any scenario where he's in danger after the season. I think if they finish the season strong, he's okay. If they end up losing three in a row to end the year and they're six and six, then yeah, there may be some questions being asked. But right now, I think people recognize that this is a better team than it was last year and that they are making progress. Yeah, and hearing you talk about that, Sam, because we'll, on our sort of general call-in shows, here occasionally from Texas fans are trying to gauge how the program is looking, especially from the, you know, the outside more objectively and not inside, you know, team-specific message boards, which can get quite, you know, they, they take on a life of their own. So it's trying to assess that 2022 season so far, as you, and I think you've done a good job of that, because, I mean, we'll even hear, you know, comparisons of Sark's record to Tom Herman, but I, I'm not sure if that's a, a fair comparison, particularly with these seasons that each of them have faced. What are your thoughts on that since it comes yeah. up so frequently? Yeah, it's 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 always hard to do that because the circumstances, like you said, the circumstances are different. And the one thing that, you know, so, and I guess you have to take into consideration the situation they took over. I thought Tom Herman took over a situation while it was not good in the wins and loss record uh, and from Charlie Strong. I thought the recruiting was pretty good. Now, Tom Herman's recruiting was pretty good in terms of the rankings, but then you look at the attrition from those classes, and particularly the la the two of the last full classes that he signed, the 2018 class and the 2019 class, particularly the 2019 class. I think they had they were ranked number three in the country in that class when they signed it. 26 guys, and I think last year. At the end of the year, I counted there were maybe six or seven guys in that class still on campus coming into this season. Uh, and none of those had really emerged as major contributors or had been established as a major contributor at that point. So you basically flushed the whole recruiting class. And that, when you looked on the field last year in 2021, those should have been your third-year guys. Those should have been your redshirt sophomores, your true juniors. And so you wonder where all the depth went. And it's like, well, it went in that 2019 class. And half of that 2018 class that is no longer on campus anymore. Uh, so that, that was a little bit of a difficult hand that I think Sark was dealt because you, you, it's hard to fill those rosters, especially with a 25 man cap. I thought he did a good job this off season of rebuilding with a mix of the high school recruiting they've done. They've done a really good job recruiting on the line of scrimmage, uh, especially on the offensive line where they have two freshman starters there two true freshman starters. And then, I thought they did a good job in the transfer portal. They added some impact players. Ryan Watts, the corner, has been a really uh, good impact player for them. They did add Isaiah Nair, and unfortunately they lost him to injury at the start of the year. Uh, 
uh, and I think if he was around, he would have added, he would have made an even better impact uh, and added more to that offense. But I thought overall, Sark did a good job of in his first year and then this last offseason, adding talent to the transfer portal. So th- those are those are all things I think you take into consideration in that. And overall, it is about the trajectory of the program. It's Herman had, a, and I thought I didn't think Herman was bad. He went thirty-two and eighteen. They they went to the Sugar Bowl, won a Sugar Bowl, but. Ultimately, they decided to make a change because they didn't like the trajectory after the fourth year. And there were some other circumstances going on, as we, as we all know, well know, re- recruiting played into that. The eyes of Texas played into that. And now, again, I say when you evaluate it, it's not just about where you are. It's about where you're going. And right now, it seems like to me, even though the record isn't great, the trajectory right now at this moment seems like it's going in a positive. Speaking of talented players, you'd earlier mentioned Max Duggan as being a Heisman candidate. Obviously, right now, he's still got some ground to make up. What impact do you think this past weekend's games, especially, you know, C.J. Stroud didn't have a great outing against Northwestern in the wind. Hinton Hooker struggled at Georgia. Of course, Stetson Bennett looked pretty good, and you know, Bryce Young picked up another loss. What impact do you think that that had on Max Duggan's chances or even some of the other uh, Big 12 candidates that are still kind of in the running for this? Yeah, I think uh, ultimately, and Steve Sarkeesian said it today, uh, and it's it's right. The more you win, the better shot you got. Uh, Hendon had you know Tennessee losing. I think Hendon Hooker's still in it, but but him losing because I think if they would have beaten Georgia, then I feel like you would have wrapped it up for Hendon Hooker right then. That very much felt like the kind of similar to me like 2012 when Johnny Manziel beat Alabama. That kind of felt like you wrapped it up. I felt we we I thought Hooker might be able to wrap it up. They beat Georgia, but they didn't. So it kind of opens the door, cracks the door open. You, you mentioned Stroud. I think that case is probably not going to be really made very as strongly until or solidified until they play Michigan. And, and if they if they end up twelve and zero and beating Michigan, then I think and, and of course close out the Big Twelve title, you end up you feel like you're pretty good there. But I think Drake May's in the mix at this point. I think you have to think Bo Nix is in the mix at this point, uh, especially if Oregon keeps on winning. But Max, I think, is very much in the mix. And I think if if TCU goes undefeated, if they run the table the rest of the way, they finish 13-0, win the Big 12, I think he'll get I think he'll get an invite to New York. Uh, if they don't, if they finish 12 and 1, or or they if they end up with two losses, then I, yeah, I think you might find them fall fall out. And then another guy I think to to keep an eye on this is, is B. John Robinson, because uh, if he has a big game this weekend on this stage and Texas is able to win out and get to the Big 12 title game, I mean, you can't tell me he's not one of the 10 best players in the country. I, I think just watching him on a week-to-week basis, he's incredibly talented. There's a reason why he's probably going to be a first-round pick, which which is not as common these days with running backs because of the way the NFL uses running backs. But he's so skilled uh, and such a great player. So I think he's still in the mix. Obviously, like some of the other guys you mentioned, Stetson Bennett, Caleb Williams, also in there. But – I think Duggan's chances, if, if TCU runs the table, I think he can get an invite. If they don't, might be a little tougher to come by. But if, if they finish 12-1, maybe he's got an outside shot. But I, I think it is going to be hard for him to win it outright unless they unless they go 13-0. Hitting a little bit after the 30-minute mark, this is RCFB Talk 109 with Sam Kahn Jr., senior writer at The Athletic, talking about all things college football in the state of Texas. Sam, you know, we've been talking about 30 minutes and, you know, there is one elephant in the room when it comes to Texas football. And, you know, I just got to ask the 
I guess, $85 million question. If you've got the number one uh, recruiting class in the country and you've got the $85 million buyout, should you be panicking if you've got a win out against Auburn, UMass, and LSU to qualify for a bowl game? Yeah, probably. I mean, but the the question is, what good does panicking do at this point? Because you're locked into nine more years and $85 million more million, Jimbo Fisher. Uh, so these, these next few weeks are going to be so critical for Texas A&M. Because, and I don't mean on the field, I mean really off the field more than anything. I don't know that there's a functional difference between them being six and six and five and seven. The season is a massive disappointment, regardless of what their record ends up being, because they they started preseason number six. And, and I would even quibble that I, I thought that was kind of high for them. But when you consider the talent they've recruited and stacked over the last four years, and it's understandable why that, that they had that preseason ranking. And after watching them beat Alabama, it's understandable why people thought of them so highly coming into this year. But even if, let's say, they were a top 15 team, this is still a massive disappointment this year. And it falls largely on the head coach because you've got a lot of freshmen playing right now, which they're a super ta- highly touted freshman uh, as the number part of the number one class. But should you have them, any freshmen out there playing major roles? Probably not. So that's that's a question of, okay, of these other top eight classes that you signed, where did you miss that you don't have these guys? We have, you still have a quarterback issue, although perhaps maybe they've solved it. We'll see as, as Connor Wigman gets back out there for the second start. Uh, I was really impressed with him the first time when he played against Ole Miss. I, he looks like he's a potential star. But they ha- but, but unless Connor is that answer, they haven't figured out that position. Uh, the offense has been very uninspiring. It's been certainly disappointing. Throughout the year, I mean, they weren't able to score very much at all against App State. They had trouble scoring against Arkansas and Miami. And they seem like they finally started to find some group, but they still have not scored. I don't believe they've scored 30 points against an FBS team since last October against South Carolina. So when you're off, when your head coach is supposed to be uh, – his, his strength is supposed to be offensive football and he's supposed to be a great play caller and a great quarterback developer and none of those things seem to be going well – and I think you have to ask yourself some serious questions. And I think that the question is, and I go back to these next few weeks, is as they end the season, is Jimbo Fisher going to be willing to relinquish some control of the offense? Is he going to be willing to bring in either some fresh offensive minds or, or hand the reins over to an established offensive coordinator and take his hands off the offense a little bit and free himself up to do the stuff that a head coach normally does, which is run this organization in 20 20- Coaching college football in 2022 is not like it was 20 years ago. You have a lot more to manage, and it's a lot more demanding. And if you're spending so much time scheming and calling plays, not saying that it can't be done. There are guys that do it, but it is difficult to do at a high level, and it is difficult to do at a championship level, and that's, where they're, that's what they're paying for. Is they're paying for you to do it at a championship level. So there's a lot of questions that have to be answered there, and I'm really curious to see what happens after the season ends, what moves he's willing to make, what moves he actually does make, and what impact that has, and also what happens with the roster. How much of the 22 class do you keep? Do you lose some guys in the portal, whether out of that class or some of these other guys who have been on the roster? How do you finish the 2023 class in recruiting? They do not have a quarterback commit in 2023. They probably need one because I can't imagine all three of those quarterbacks, uh, or all four of those scholarship quarterbacks, they have four scholarship quarterbacks. I can't imagine all four are going to be around because that's just the way things go in in current college football, if you're not starting, you're, you're looking to leave. So 
they've got to figure that out too. So there's a lot that has to be done here in the next few weeks for Texas A&M. And uh, at least for now, it doesn't seem like there's not, not much they can do to change the head man because, like I said, he's guaranteed $85 million over the next nine years. With that type of contract, is Jimbo now officially above reproach? Because I'm just trying to figure out, like, you know, if let's say, because uh, again, I can't imagine that there's going to be any kind of significant change in removing Jimbo or anything else like that. But let's say he chooses not to change his offense or what else needs to fall out from the bottom for Texas A&M to go, hey, you know what, we'd have to bite this bullet and do this $85 million. Like, is there a, still a long one way for Jimbo to not have to change? Yeah, I, I mean, I think certainly unless there's something that's non-football related that were to happen, yeah, then he's got he's got the power and he's got the time. But I will give him this. I don't I think he recognizes and I think he understands that it's gotta be fixed. And I think he probably wants to win bad enough that he's probably willing to do something. Now, what is that? I don't know. And that's what I'm going to be fascinated to see. I, I don't think he's going to be content to just, well, I'm going to be stubborn and keep calling the plays. So I think that's the answer, even if we're going to stink. Like, I, I, I think he's stubborn, but I don't know that he's that stubborn. I, I think it, it's hard of hearts. He's still uber competitive. And he wants to win. I, I'm sure everybody saw the press conference that he called after Nick Saban accused him of, quote unquote, buying players. And you saw how much smoke was coming out of that guy's ears. That's a guy who is competitive, and that's a guy who wants to win. And I've seen him like that before, you know, not in not in front of a camera, but I've seen him like that before uh, when it came to recruiting. And he wants to win, and I, I do believe that. The question is, is, and this is the unanswerable question, and only he can answer it, is what happens when you want to win really bad and you think you're the answer as a play caller? And so, and granted, it was 10 years ago, or almost 10 years ago, but when you've reached the pinnacle doing one thing, it's really, really hard to look yourself in the mirror and say, maybe we can't reach the pinnacle with me doing that thing anymore. So I understand why it's difficult, but I do think there, he can't be, I think, totally oblivious to what has gone wrong and, and how it has all fallen apart. And so I, I, I do think that there is some recognition there. And it's just a question of to how far he's willing to go. Sam, when you described him as, you know, a QB developer, coach is known as a play caller from the offensive side of the ball. And obviously he's got this big contract. The media connection in my head is Jim Harbaugh going into the 2021 season where a lot of focus was being put on him, wasn't performing to the standards that his salary indicated he should be. Um, and he kind of made that gamble. He bet on himself, took a bit of a pay cut, went out and had a phenomenal season. And then he's got Michigan looking really, really good this year. Do you kind of see some similarities there? Is there any chance we see Jimbo do the same thing where he admits that, you know, hey, this is this is on me. I'll put my money where my mouth is, show that, you know, I'm still the right person for this program and use that as some fire to kind of go out there and, and get things turned around for A&M. Uh, I don't see him taking a voluntary pay cut. <laughs> I can promise you. It, I, it, I, it was I, a long I, shot, but, you know, I had to ask. Stunned. I would be stunned. And and, I, and the, the other thing is, is that Texas A&M is not hurting for money. <laughs> they have a very, they have very deep pocket of donors. They are one of the wealthiest athletic departments in the country. So, yeah, no, I don't envision that ever becoming a scenario. But, uh, yeah, I think his, his 
sign of contrition or sign of uh, of change is going to be to what degree he really has control of this offense, to what degree he welcomes new ideas and fresh perspective. Uh, that that is that is going to be the sign to me. If he's willing to go, let's just throw. In, I'm not gonna. This is not. This is just speculation. It's not something that I think is happening. But let's just say he went over to TCU and say, "Hey, I'm gonna go hire Garrett Riley to run his offense." And if he's willing to do that, say Garrett Wright is going to be the play caller. He's going to run the offense, and I'm going to be a CEO. If he went and did something like that and said that, then I'd be willing to say, okay, this guy's willing to change and evolve. Everybody has to change and evolve. Nick Saban had to change and evolve seven, eight years ago. Do you think Nick Saban wants to win games 45-42? No. I think Nick Saban would love to win games the way he did early in his coaching career with a lot of defense and a lot more risk-averse offense. But – he got beat by some guys like Johnny Manziel and Chad Kelly and Deshaun Watson and some other dudes. And he realized that, man, I've got to update what I do because if I don't, it's going to pass me by. And, and when you've been in this long time, eventually you hit those moments when you realize that you've got to adapt to what's going on now. And I think Jimbo is that one of those moments. It's just, it's just a matter of how much he's willing to adapt. You know, just to mix it up a slight bit, we're talking about teams that might actually make a bowl in Texas. Rice has five wins with Western Kentucky, UTSA, and UNT ahead of them. Do you think it's going to happen for the Owls this year? I do. I do. And I think because that last week, that Thursday night game they had against UTEP, that to me was the pivotal one. Because uh, if they didn't win that one, then I didn't think they were going to win. Now they've got three shots at the one. And it's not easy. They've got, like you said, Western Kentucky, UTSA, North Texas are all good teams. And none of those are going to be easy. But I do think I, – I went and saw them, and to me, they have the talent to, to win one of, at least one of those games. They have got really good receivers, Bradley Rosner, Luke McCaffrey, Isaiah Esdale, really good, uh, really good quarterback. I think T.J. McMahon has really come along. And the one thing that that program has been missing for years is a consistent quarterback that has been healthy. Uh, they went through a year, I think it was either last year or the year before, where they went through four – I think it was last year. They went through four different starting quarterbacks because of injuries or other reasons. And they – I think T.J. McMahon has started more games in a row than anybody there in like three or two or three years. So the fact that they've got some consistency of that position, McMahon's a guy who's confident. Uh, he's willing to run. He's, he's willing to take the risks on, on throws downfield. Uh, he plays with a certain level of confidence. They've got some – some backs that can make things happen. Uh, and then defensively, I think overall they've been a solid program, but they, they've just got to avoid laying some eggs. They've had a couple of games this year where they really laid an egg. The FAU game earlier when they were up 14 nothing on the road and, and weren't able to close it out. The Charlotte game, they hosted Charlotte six days after Charlotte fired its coach and then gave up seven straight touchdown drives. Like that's Those are the things that you got to get, get rid of but the one thing that I've been encouraged about that team is that every time they've lost a game this year, they've bounced back with a win. And that hasn't always been the case. In past years, those losses can have been devastating, deflating, and led to, to losing streaks. Whereas this year, I feel like they've really been able to show some resilience. And I think Mike Bloomgren's got them going in the right direction. I think, uh, you know, Marcus Tuyaso, the offensive coordinator there, you can see, I think he's finally getting a groove. I think. You know, they, they've scored, they scored 37 points against UTEP. They scored 42 against Louisiana Tech. So they've, they've shown some things offensively. They were really close against Houston. You know, they, they, that one came down in the last minute. So I think they'll be able to squeak it out. I don't know which one it is. It's hard to say because, like I said, all three of those are good teams. 
But I do think that program is moving in the right direction, and it looks like they're finally starting to generate some momentum. And if they get to a bowl game, uh, that's going to be huge for that program. They haven't been to one since 2014. UTSA has also, you know, been doing pretty well, at least in conference, you know, running the table so far. What kind of ceiling do you think they have this season for a bowl game if they continue to win? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, to right now, I think you still have to peg them as the team that will win the conference. Uh, the, the one thing that does hurt them is losing JT Clark. Uh, he had season injury, injury last week, and God, he's been such a playmaker for them. Uh, you know, Frank Harris can just throw jump balls and he goes and gets them. I'm, I'm sure everybody remembers the, the one he threw in the North Texas game to win it. But they do have a lot of talent there because they still have Joshua Cephas and they still have Zachary Franklin. And they've got some good running backs, too. So uh, Jeff Trailer's done a really, really good job with that group. Uh, yeah, I would I would expect, like I said, even without Clark, I'd, and they've had some other injuries. Of, you know, they've had injuries to their tackles, you know, on the offensive line and, and some other spots. They, they had to endure some losses on defense because they lost some really talented guys uh, like Clarence Hicks and Tariq Woolen. You know, Woolen obviously is in, in the NFL now. Uh Th- those are some those are some tough losses, but man, look at even the teams that that they were underdogs against. You know, they they took Houston to the wire. They led them by 14 in the second half. They had tech. They were still in the game with Texas going into the fourth quarter, uh, and then ever since then, even when it comes down to the wire in these conference games, they've been in great shape because Frank Harris is one of the best two minute quarterbacks in the country. I think he's led more touchdown drives in the fourth quarter and overtime with his team tied or down eight points or less than anybody, any FBS quarterback in the country. So when you got that guy on your side and you got the talent they have and you got the coaching staff they have, uh, all of it's working together really, really well. So, so I suspect uh, they may not win out, but, but I wouldn't be shocked if they did, if they went undefeated in conference and won conference USA again. Sam, keeping up on that G5 train happening in Texas, you got to witness history the other day when you got to go see SMU and Houston put up a 77-63 to game in regulation. What have you seen from those two teams? Because I know Houston was supposed to be, you know, this contender for the New Year's Six opportunity for the G5. SMU was coming off of losing Sonny Dykes to TCU, and we saw just an explosion of points at Gerald Ford Stadium. What's your assessment of those two teams right now? I'll start with Houston. Uh, on a similar note, not as bad as AM, but certainly a massive disappointment this season for Houston because this was a team that a lot of people in the offseason pegged as the, the sexy pick for the New Year's Six uh, spot for the group of five. Uh, some people had even ponder that they could run the table and go 12 and 0 or 13 and 0. Uh, certainly that they've obviously fallen well short in that sitting at five and four. They still got a lot of talent. Like the Clayton Toon is, is definitely one of the better quarterbacks out there. Nathaniel Dell is one of the best, better receivers out there in the country. And, and they still got some really good talent on defense, but they've had so many close games and had trouble. They had trouble getting stops late in games. Uh, you know, certainly they, that losing that, that the whole game in, to Tulane in overtime in late September when Tulane was out, Michael Pratt was a tough one. Losing a game to Texas Tech early on was which one they could have won certainly hurt. And giving up 77 to SMU, I mean, they gave up 11 touchdowns and gave up 56 points in the first half. That just – you can't have that. So it's not a total disaster, but it's certainly a disappointment for them this year. Uh, they, they still can bounce back. If they can bounce back and, and win three more games to finish eight and four, then you probably feel a little bit better about that team. But 
then this is not the season you expected to have before you go into the Big 12. And it, you look at the team and you look at the roster and, and you think to yourself, if you don't, if they don't get it together and if they don't, they don't fortify that roster a little bit more and, and correct a few things, what are they looking at in the first year in the Big 12? Because if you had asked me at the start of the season and after 2021, when they came out of the season 12 and two and the job that I thought they did retooling that roster and building it both in recruiting and the transfer portal, I thought they were really well positioned for, for their entry into the big 12. Now I'm wondering if they're going to be, are they going to be a four and eight team in the first year? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see because when that schedule comes out and it's going to have ECU and Baylor and Texas tech and Texas and, you know, possibly Oklahoma state, you know, it's, that, that's that's a different animal than what than what they're dealing with now in the American. So so they've got a lot to fix before they get there, but they are committed as a program that they, they invest and and they've got you know they've got a lot of money in terms of the staff salary pool and all that. So so there's it's not for lack of investment or or anything that they're missing. It's just they've got to put it together. As for SMU, I think Rhett Lashley's done a pretty solid job in year one. They certainly hit a valley, you know, in the middle of the season there. That that UCF game in, in October was one that does that certainly had me scratching my head. I think they were up or, or it was a close game at halftime, and they just got run off the field in the second half. Uh, th- they've certainly dealt with a lot of injuries to s- some key players. You know, even Tanner Mordecai has, has been in and out of the lineup at times. Uh, but, but man, they put it all together on, on Saturday. And, and to watch them with all those receivers with Mordecai, uh, and see what they did and, and, and Lashley calling the plays. It, it was really fun to watch. And I think certainly you look at that program as when, when Houston, UCF, and Cincinnati move on to the, to the Big 12, this program is positioned really, really well to be potentially the best football program in the, in the group of five moving forward, or definitely one of them, because they've got the recruiting base, they've got the city, uh, they're they're starting to invest from a facility standpoint. They've got that end zone facility that they're going to be doing uh, for the football team. The, the NIL game, they've been really heavy in it, and they have done a really good job of building off the branding that Sonny Dykes did in terms of branding this Dallas's program. They've been using that and continue to use that in recruiting and in the portal. I, I thought they did a really terrific job in the portal this offseason and bringing back those bounce-back players, guys that had left DFW to go somewhere else and bringing them back uh, to the area to play for SMU. And so I think that's going to be their strategy. I think it's a sound one. I think it's worked. You know, Houston has used it in, in the past as well. And I think certainly as you look forward in the America, I think they're really well, well positioned. And I'm interested to see now that they kind of hit that groove. Uh, they've won two in a row. You look at this last three weeks, they have potential to finish strong. They got that game with Tulane, you know, a Thursday night around on November 17th, but I think SMU's got a chance to make some noise down here down the stretch. So which of these new Big 12 teams seem to have the edge heading into the newly formed group of teams? It's a great question. I, I would have to say Cincinnati just because I think the Bearcats have uh, probably recruited more consistently at a high level. And, and to see them follow up their playoff run the way they did, uh, I mean, it, it hasn't been a, a perfect year. I think the standards have gotten so high there that, you know, you have people in Cincinnati asking questions and stuff. They're seven and two, you know, they're four and one in the league. They're still in the race for the, for the conference championship. Uh, they, they, Luke Fickle has set a really high standard there. So I think with his pedigree, him locked into a long-term deal, I think they, to me, look like they're on the most stable footing heading into, heading into the big 12. Uh, like I said, especially when you look at the recruiting, uh, I think the highest potential exists in Houston. 
because of what I said about their investment. And when, I mean, when you just talk about the recruiting footprint, being in the city of Houston, and now you're going to go head to head with uh, Baylor and Texas Tech and TCU, and they, those schools cannot use conference affiliation against Houston anymore. But they've got to get more consistent on the field. They've got to get, uh, they've got to get a better product on the field more consistently. But, but I think the ceiling long-term is really, really high. If, for those old-time old college football fans may remember, when Houston first went into the Southwest Conference in 1976, they won the league in the first year, and they won it twice, I think, in the first four years. So this is, it's, it's, it's a long time ago, but it's not necessarily new territory for Houston to come in and make a splash. I don't anticipate it's going to happen this time around. But, but I say all that to say that that program has the institutional want to, to succeed at a high level, and they, they've shown over time they're willing – to do what it takes to get there. But, but, but overall, I think of those three, I think Cincinnati is on the best footing going in right now. Sam, speaking of G5 teams and future expectations, I'll be the first to admit I was a little bit leery about Jake Spavadol's plan with, you know, relying heavily, heavily on uh, the transfer portal. I think the, gosh, the San Marcos school district is currently facing a playoff ban because they were recruiting more high school players than Spav was at Texas State. <laughs> yeah. Um, but obviously, so far, it seems like uh, he's he's got Texas State playing better this year. They've certainly, you know, currently sitting at three wins, but the past three games have been extremely close losses to some pretty good teams, you know, in conference. And they've got potentially a couple more winnable games left this season and a new president that's wanting to invest some more into the athletics program there. Uh, what do you, what do you see for the future of Texas state under, under Jake Spavadol? I'm curious to see how it plays out at the end of this year. Cause I think that loss to Monroe really hurt. They, they were up 21, nothing in that game. And to lose that game to, to a two win Monroe team, I mean, to lose that game to two, two win Louisiana Monroe team, I think really, really hurt. And I think it hurt momentum. Some of the momentum that they built from that app state win in mid season, I think you kind of lost some of that by losing that game. I think they need to really need to finish strong. Spavadol has been, you know, the, the recruiting strategy, like you said, it was a risk. I understand why they did it because when you look at where Texas State sits in terms of all those things I just mentioned for Houston that isn't willing to invest, facilities, infrastructure, uh, things like that, Texas State is not, does not stack up well. Uh, to other schools in that regard. I, I know Spavadol told me we, we visited in the summer at the Texas High School Coach Convention. He said whenever they need to use an indoor facility, they have to go down to San Marcos High School because they don't have one. So th they have to go over there a decent amount of times for practice. And he said Lake Travis High School over in Austin has 48 uh, racks in their weight room. Texas State has 12. So <laughs> Uh, that that is that is a resource problem. Now they are investing. They are you know spending some money. They have raised money. They're going to start a weight room project here after the season, and that's a positive thing. Uh, but but when you're in a situation where you're trying to recruit high school kids who sometimes come from places that have better facilities than Texas State does at the college level, that make that creates a challenge. And so that's partially why they went this route. But if you're going to go that route and you're going to get all the transfer guys and you're going to say that, hey, we need these more experienced guys that's going to give us a better chance to win, then you've got to win at some point. And so, so it's a really tough situation because I do think I do think his approach I, I understand his approach. I think it was made in good faith. 
and I understand why they did it. But at the same time, it is a results-based business, and we're sitting here four years in, I think he's got 12 wins to his name, and people are just not very patient. So the question is, is going to be, is how patient is the administration? Are they going to be willing to give him a little bit of extra time because of those shortcomings that the program has from an infrastructure standpoint? Does that mean he's going to get another year? Or if they don't finish strong and if, if they don't make a bowl this year, which they're going to have to win three in a row in order to do that, if that if they don't end strong, are they going to end up making a change and making a move to go a different direction? That That's going to be something I'm watching here down the stretch. You know, as we slowly start to get towards the end of our talk, I, I wanted to lighten it up a bit. So what are your thoughts on the hypnotoad? You know, all hail the <laughs> hypnotoad. And, you know, I mean, I know David Upton said you shouldn't lick toads, but what's your take? No, um, <laughs> but uh, but what has your thought been on this kind of I mean, and maybe it gets to kind of a bigger question. I mean, the college football has notably gotten a lot looser and wackier, at least on the marketing and social media side. Is this something that is we should encourage? Or I don't know how you encourage it, but, you know, is this what are your thoughts on all of it? Anything that gets people excited and involved, and particularly casual fans involved, I think is a good thing. Because the football, the hardcore alums or the hardcore football fans are going to be they're going to be there because they want to be there. But ultimately, when you talk about growing your program, growing your your image, your identity, it's going to be about attracting the people who aren't necessarily alums that love the school to death or aren't necessarily diehard football fans, but maybe people who want to be part of something cool, part of something interesting. And that's what something like the Hypnotoad or the psychedelic videos that they're posting on Twitter after every win the last few weeks that brings some of that in and, it, and maybe a Fort Worth resident that doesn't have any ties university or just only knows of the program because it's in town. Maybe that person goes and wants to check it out on TV, or maybe eventually they want to turn into a fan that goes and buys a ticket. I think that stuff is important. And I think for TCU, I think it's, it's been a signal to the direction and how Sonny Dykes wants to run this program. He wants guys to have fun. He wants guys to be loose and enjoy their time there. It doesn't mean that you're not going to work hard. It doesn't mean that you're not going to try to win. But there's more than one way to skin a cat. It doesn't always have to be, we're going to grind you to the nub uh, 24-7. And not every coach believes that. There, there's different, you know, different strokes for different folks, and, and everybody has their own approach. But Dykes has been a guy that's made the program accessible, and the previous regime wasn't. The previous regime you know, under Gary Patterson, they weren't very accessible. It was it was hard to get to get any media coverage there because, you know, Gary Patterson didn't want any secrets out, doesn't want you know opponents finding out stuff. So it was hard to get interviews. It was hard to get players. It was hard to get much time with Gary Patterson. And even for and it's not even for just reporters, even for people within the university, like people that were in the creative department or in the athletic department, trying to post stuff on social media, it was hard sometimes for them to get stuff from practice or whatever because. Again, it just goes to the natural coach paranoia, where Sonny Dykes has been a, a complete reversal where it's like wide open. They, he had fans coming to practice in spring football. And, you know, and during fall camp, I think practice was open for the first hour for, for reporters and stuff like that. But, you know, he encourages donors to be around, stuff like that. So that stuff all builds goodwill. Ultimately, it comes down to wins and losses. The hypnotoad is only fun if you win. If, if you're losing, if you're three and six, then the hypnotoad is, is, is not something that people are going to be rallying about all the time. But it is a fun little thing, like I said, to keep to get people engaged, to keep people engaged, 
And I think it just kind of rolls with the vibe that Sonny Dykes wants. Could not agree more. And I'm sure you're going to watch a fantastic game with TCU once again this coming weekend. I know you'll be at the TCU-Texas game. But Sam, where can people find you? Where are you on uh, social media? Where are you on radio? Where are you on uh, any kind of publications that you're in? Where can people find your work for the rest of the season? Uh, of course, theathletic.com. Go to our college football page. Uh, you know, all we have entirely... All our stuff is there, a great staff that we have, uh, so many talented writers and editors, and certainly fortunate to work for that group. So go to theathletic.com and check out our college football page. I write there regularly uh, on social media, as long as Twitter is still around. <laughs> it seems to be very eventful right now. But obviously at Escon Jr. on, on Twitter, uh, and then uh, with me and Max Olson uh, have a podcast every Thursday during the season. It's on the Andy Staple Show and Friends feed. Uh, so wherever you find your podcast, subscribe to Andy Staples Show and Friends Feed. We have a bunch of our Andy Staples hosts a show with Ari Wasserman. Uh, Nicole Auerbach hosts Power Hour with Chris Vanini. Uh, Ari and Mitch Light, our recruiting editor, host Stars Matter. We have a bunch of different – and then Max, Max and I host the Thursday show. We talk a lot of Big 12, but we also talk some state of Texas. And we also talk uh, just whatever the heck we want to talk about So uh, in, in college football. So – uh, so check that out. Subscribe to that. We, we drop it on Thursdays. And uh, we also do on the YouTube on our YouTube channel, the Andy Staple Show YouTube channel. We have uh, some of our interviews go there. We had an interview with Sonny Dykes uh, earlier this week. So that post on the YouTube page uh, earlier this week. So check that out on the Andy Staple Show YouTube. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, the athletic.com and just uh, read our work, subscribe to our work. We, we love covering college football and uh, we appreciate everyone who comes and checks it out. For sure, I enjoyed that Sunny Dykes interview. I actually watched it a little earlier today, so it's Thank been you. a I that. yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure having you, Sam. And and uh, by the way, I love that you said that about Twitter. I, I, every time we go into one of these, I'm like, we're gonna keep going until they pull the plug on the entire uh, <laughs> you know Twitter spaces. Uh, <laughs> I was you know, we'll, we'll, when, when, we'll, when we set it up tonight, and I saw everything going crazy. I was like, am I? Is it going to go offline like what we're talking tonight or something? Like, what's going to happen? <laughs> hey, at least Elon did one. So hopefully he sees the value in them. You know, that, that's the thing. I was like, he just needs to do one. Maybe he'll see it as his little soapbox. And then with the rest of us, minnows can keep turning it on. <laughs> no we want to talk. Anyways, thanks for joining us, Sam. I hope you're feeling better. And I hope you continue to feel better, especially in time for this exciting game coming up this weekend. No problem. Thank you all so much for having me. Yeah. Well, just wanted to thank all of you who listened. This was RCFB Talk 109. We were joined by Sam Khan Jr. My name is Bob Ekhayeri. I was joined by my regular co-hosts, J.D. Moore and Sirius. My unlucky self is stuck going to a fall wedding this weekend. But I know the rest of you are going to not be stuck going to fall weddings and are going to really enjoy the college football this weekend, both tonight. Although tonight's wrapping up. Looks like Memphis has got a pretty good lead on Tulsa. With about five minutes left, and in the final minute, Louisiana's got this all wrapped up with Georgia Southern for the most part. But looking forward to the rest of this weekend for the hope for on behalf of the rest of you, uh, live vicariously for me, please. But thanks for listening. That was all we've got now. I'm going to hang up and listen. <laughs>